0: Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation, with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl, today, tomorrow, and forever. You, too, can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited conservation for a continent.
1: Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss,
0: debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Standard Sportsman. I'm your host, Casey Short. Joined as always with my co-host, Brent
1: Birch. Brent, how you doing today? Pretty fine, pretty fine. Trying to come out of this... This uh, Antarctic (laughs) uh, (laughs) Arkansas, we've been living in for a week. You know, today is we're recording this on a Tuesday morning, which is the when by the time it's come out, everybody's going to remember it because it's so dang foggy uh, today. And finally getting some temps that might melt some of this stuff. Even though I talked to some friends that even after all this rain and warmer temps yesterday and overnight, and now we're at 50 something degrees, he can still walk on uh, walk out in a rice field and not even get a crack of ice. So still pretty thick apparently.
0: It's going to be a minute. Uh, By the time this airs, you know, we might be thawed out for, for what's going to be our last weekend here in the bottom end of the Mississippi flyway. But, uh, it's been an adventure for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've been, we've been hunting them on dry ground, like you're in Canada. Um, they're, they're just so desperate. They're following the geese is what I've, I've come mm-hmm. to the conclusion they see a, a pile of geese on the ground and the ducks just go right in behind them, uh, trying to figure out, you know, if the geese like it. We, we probably will like it. So, uh, we've had some pretty good hunts, but really truly managing that effort. where we have not gone out there and tried to just shoot everything that comes in. We've only done it twice. Uh, cause I'd rather hunt them on the thaw. We've talked about that before. Um, I'd rather, you know, hunt them more conventional, even though it was kind of cool, shoot them, uh, you know, hunt them on the, on the dry ground, uh, just like you're in Canada, uh, <laughs> minus the spinning wing decoy and definitely <laughs> not shooting the brown birds and all the pintails, <laughs> but, uh, but still pretty cool. But, but, you know, trying to manage that where we're not just going to just really hammer them when they're down. Cause man, these ducks have been vulnerable.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you got to think it's not a foreign practice to them. They dry feed in other places, I guess, for us in Arkansas, you know, the abundance of, of flooded agricultural fields. It's not a sort of trait we see them do a lot, but uh, obviously they're not foreign to it and adapted pretty well here in this. Uh, I don't want to call it a thaw yet because we're not there, but it's at least thawing.
1: The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Waterfowl Hunters deserve to have a set of waders that can excel year in and year out throughout the duration of the season. So Sika Gear set out to build the best pair of waders ever. Constructed from Gore-Tex Pro Laminate, the face fabric offers added durability and is breathable in active working conditions while completely sealing out the elements. Importantly, they proudly stand behind all of their Delta Zip wader features with their 100% serviceable guarantee. And I'm speaking from experience as I have sent my original pair of Sika waiters from the 2018 season back twice without a hiccup. Engineered to outwork, outlast, and outhunt everything else in the market, the Delta Zip Waiter from Sika gear is the gold standard for reliability. The Chatham jacket from Tom Beckby features a durable, weatherproof, 8 ounce wax shelter cloth shell that develops a great looking patina with use. I've actually worn this jacket the last couple of seasons and appreciate the shorter cut to it so it fits great inside my waders it's also really good weight for most arkansas days of field so if you like to mix a little vintage look with your technical gear waders this is the jacket you can find the jacket online at tombeckby.com you can also find it in their brick and mortar locations in wilson arkansas birmingham alabama and the new store in oxford mississippi yeah and it was even interesting the the species were the the teal came into the dry ground like I mean, by just wads of them, it was it was nuts. But we were, I mean, we were shooting widgeons. We we maybe shoot one or two widgeons a year. We we were having five and ten widgeons come in at a time on the dry ground. Uh, it was it just kind of real real odd stuff.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So in my experience, watching because I've watched them before, you know, come up out of a, off a sheet of ice up onto a ridge and dry feed, and it's typically teal and widgeon that I see do it the most.
1: Yeah, well, that's what that's what we were seeing the most, and the, the mallards would be like. a— It'd be like a drake. I think the biggest group we had of Mallard's was like six, uh, but it was typically like a, a lone drake would just cruise right into the g- goose decoys and sit down on the ground with them. Hmm. Um, but uh, the teal would just, I mean, constantly buzzing. And then they we were hunting a bean field, so they would get down on the ground, and you couldn't see them in the in the rows in the bean field because, you yeah, know, they're such a small bird. <laughs> and they'd, they'd just disappear, and you got to you know yell or whatever to get them up. But uh, I don't know. It was a pretty wild scene, but I'm ready to get back to conventional Arkansas-style hunting yeah well uh why don't you
0: tell me more about our guest today we got a pretty cool guest lined up
1: yeah he's a guy you know i got introduced to a few years back and we've we've traded a lot of messages over social media and whatnot we've had him in greenhead magazine um, a time or two and uh just really enjoy visiting with him because i think uh, you know a lot of his thoughts and the way he sees the sport and the resource kind of align with you know our messaging on this podcast and what we do but we've got a guy and he's also from a kind of an unconventional part of the state too um uh, you know he's not in one of the, the more traditional areas but we've got uh parent party on the show today and uh, most people may know him from from social media uh, he's the he's the guy behind wing select farms that does a lot of really cool uh, trail cam videos of his ducks and explaining what's going on because he's got a He's got a background biologist and and land manager and and does a lot of really cool stuff with his habitat uh, and really truly appreciates the resource for what it is and and studies them. But uh Perrin, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm glad I could be a part of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you, real quick, give us you know a little bit of background, telling telling everybody a little more about who you are and and, and where you are and, and what you're what you're managing mm-hmm. down there.
2: Yeah. Well uh I'm originally from uh southern Arkansas, Magnolia, um but grew up in Little Rock. Um went off to Colorado for a little bit, went to school there, uh at Colorado State and wound up coming back, uh finishing my degree there at uh Mueller at Little Rock and um but after I graduated, I came back home to southern Arkansas and uh, took over managing all of my family's timberland and uh, kind of became an accountant by the seat of my, my pants and um, took over managing all of our oil and gas and timber uh, business. But, yeah, I've been doing that for the past 10 years. And um, when I first got back, I finished my degree in uh, wildlife biology at Southern Arkansas University. Um, um, but yeah, I've been managing all of our timberland for the past 10 years. And, uh, we've got about 3,200 acres under management of timberland within our partnership. And 1,200 of that is what I call wing select farms. And that's what I've started the page for. And that's actually where I live currently. And. Um, like you said, we're kind of in a unconventional part of the state, you know, it's, you've got Felsenthal to the South of us. That's pretty well known for duck hunting, but you know, we don't have any agriculture or anything. It's all strictly timber production around here. And, um, but we've done a lot of habitat work, uh, primarily moist soil management and we'll plant millet and rotate that with native moist soil and got about 40 acres of moist soil that we've, uh, implemented and it's. You know, the, I think the videos speak for itself that you can hold ducks down here in, you know, pine plantation country. Um, surprised me pretty well. But um, but yeah, born and raised in the state. And um, yeah, I guess that's about it. Me in a nutshell. Yeah, so that, that ground is in the Washita River bottoms, correct? It is. Yep, it's right uh, really close to Camden, actually. We're right by the uh, East Camden Airport.
1: Okay, all right, yeah, that's definitely off the beaten path a little bit, but there's <laughs> yeah. but there's some track record, you know. There's some places in Southwest Arkansas. Millwood used to hold a bunch of ducks. Uh, you know, the Red River can can uh, can hold some at times, and and so it's not you know it's not too you know too wild and crazy. It's it's not like some of the stuff we were talking about with Doctor Osborne and transmitter ducks uh, sitting in business parks in Kansas City, Missouri, but. Uh, that part of the world can can get can get some ducks at times and and you've obviously built a, a really cool uh and you even you know reference at this you know as a wetland complex uh mm-hmm. to to kind of attract and hold these these ducks
2: yeah yeah and i you know that's having the really you know we already had the mid to late successional habitat which is pretty much just beaver ponds and that's buck brush you know button brush um cypress pupalo breaks all that kind of stuff we've got the roost habitat in the cover um really all we did is go in and build uh moist soil impoundments um on existing wetlands that we already have and all this ground uh used to be farmed for soybean and cotton And uh, I think they did a little rice out here, but that was back in the 70s and 80s when bean prices, you know, shot up. And so there were a lot of ditches and everything established in a lot of these uh, units that we've built. But really just adding that food element is what built the complex. So we got our early successional moist soil impoundments, and then we have the mid to late successional beaver swamps, cypress breaks, all that. and. You know, that's really what the complex is, is having the food and then the cover. Um, So you got your feed and your roost habitat. And really the birds, you know, they do pretty much the same things every day. They, you know, feed in the moist soil in the mornings and, you know, they'll traffic back to the cover, the mid to late successional habitat in the midday. Um, And then, you know, right around 20 minutes after sunset, they all get up off the moist soil and hit the roost and it's uh pretty much the same thing you know repeated every day until they eat the field out and move to the next one um but yeah you're talking about the the red river that uh that's where i originally grew up hunting and my first duck hunting experiences were there near garland city arkansas um and we were right there off the red river and that was right there in the late 90s you know i was just eight nine years old on my first duck hunts and I was lucky enough to have some, my dad took me hunting and my godfather took me hunting around there. And it was right there, you know, at the peak of the B-pop. So I really got to experience what high B-pops, you know, create. And uh, it was some of the best duck hunting I've ever experienced. So it's it's definitely a part of the country that um, has, you know, has some, has held birds for a long time historically. So it's not completely off the beaten path.
0: Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned soybean prices there. I don't think many people realize what $14 beans did uh, to mm-hmm. decrease habitat in the state of Arkansas, but it was substantial the amount of ground that got cleared. So was your place was that all uh agland when, when they when the family bought it or what was it was it timber? How did that start out?
2: You know, well we uh, you know we've got we've held uh, you know, my family was in the sawmill business and we had a Uh, hardwood flooring business so my granddad and my dad had acquired you know a lot of 40s 80s smaller tracks and about i guess about 16 years ago um you know my family wanted to have a place one contiguous track that the family could enjoy and all that so we took some of those tracks and did a land swap deal and uh got this track that was 2007 or 2008 and um it was all timbered at that point. Um, but the previous owners had bought it just after it had been taken out of row crop production. And all of the row crop fields had been planted to loblolly lolly pine. And so now, you know, 30 that was 30 some years ago when they planted that in pine. And now we're in the process of clear cutting all of that pine and just letting it natural region back to hardwood. Um, but yeah, a tremendous amount of bottomland hardwood was lost during that time. I, I know a guy that used to work for us that was from Brinkley and he was talking about there. uh, I guess a lot of that's owned by the Stevens now around Clarendon, um, you know, all that CRP or WRP ground, whatever it is that was, that was all cleared around that same time for beans. And, uh, he said he, he drove by it when they were clearing it, and he said it looked like the world was on fire. You know, they were burning all that bottomland hardwood, and it just broke his heart. But yeah, a lot of people don't realize that that during that time of we lost a lot of bottomland hardwood. Yeah, it had a huge, huge impact. Not,
0: I mean, not just on the habitat in the state, but I think it really changed. Uh, how the birds used habitat in the state. Like I think that was a big switch, you know, that drove them into feeding in ag fields and it drove really the hunting culture in the state as well. Uh, again, I think a lot of people don't, don't necessarily tie duck hunting trends and culture to commodity prices, but you look at, you know, beef prices in Canada and that, or excuse me, beef prices drive production in Canada, which in turn drives production of, of recruitment and, and waterfowl so it's there's a lot that goes on and, and plays a role in what we see and do every single day that maybe we don't think about
2: yep that's for sure well I, you know land use changes i mean i y'all were talking about habitat with dr osborne and you know that is the number one driver for you know production of wildlife in general having the habitat uh with bob white quail i mean my granddad was a quail hunter and uh, my dad was a quail hunter back in the fifties, you know, his dad took him, and that was because of, uh, the land use. Um, mm-hmm. it was all small farms and, you know, you had cotton fields that would grow up and old fence rows and, you know, the commodities changed, the economy changed and so did the wildlife. You know, now we're pine plantation and dense timberland and, you know, deer and, uh, got wild turkey, but we definitely don't have quail like we used to, so... It's definitely, you know, the economics drive wildlife. I guess is one way to put it.
0: Uh, for sure, and we could all take some notes from the the Bob White Coil struggles, and I mean, we know it's pretty easy to see it with with big farm production. You know, we farm edge to edge. We don't have fence rows. We have totally stripped the land of their habitat, and and it shows. Um, and that, and you're right. I mean, the production is is habitat based. We all know that. There's no no arguing that, but the same time, you know, when you shoot that last covey of quail off your farm, that they're not coming back either.
2: Yep. Yep. Harvest is the other missing, you know, the other key habitat and harvest are both the two number ones. I don't think you could place one over the other, really. Yeah. It all
0: comes together. So third generation, you guys started off, you said in the sawmill and then flooring business, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So what, what? drove you to want to get into waterfowl management or biology?
2: Yeah, you know, I was talking earlier about, uh, you know, my first hunts were around the Red River in Garland City. And, you know, I if I could link one key moment to why I'm, a, you know, obsessed with waterfowl, it's really because of my first duck hunts on zero-grade rice fields in the Red River bottoms, um, and I think that was right when the Robo Duck came out. I remember we went to Max and they had them stacked in a pyramid. That was like 98, 99 or something like that. But uh, you you dated yourself when you said Robo Duck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it's Mojo now. I guess. Yeah, yeah I try not to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it. Uh, those you know those first experiences there on the Red River. I mean, that's what did it. Um and that's when beepops were I mean, do y'all know the numbers? I I mean it was wasn't it over the ten million mark we're talking about or Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And uh and and we had more waste grain. I just don't, the there's a lot more food. Uh and there's a lot more rice production. Now it's a lot of it's got fall tillage going on and it's a lot of corn right. down there. Um but during that time you didn't have as much of that, and then you had bee pops peaked out and You know, there were some, I mean, I'm thinking of them right now. Just, I remember just seeing, we put out one robo duck and I've never seen so many ducks swarm one decoy in my life. And, uh, that, that key moment, that's when I was just, I was hooked. And, uh, you know, that led me down a path to pursue a degree in wildlife biology. And, you know, I dug deep into conservation literature, um, you know, reading Aldo Leopold, uh, really inspired me, uh, Sand County Almanac. Um, hmm. That was, you know, one of the most important. That that book there really set me on a path to follow conservation. Um, so and Tell our listeners that name
0: again so they can all go read it, because this should be required reading to buy a hunting license.
2: Yeah, it should be. A Sand County Almanac, and it's by Aldo Leopold. Um, and some consider him to be the father of conservation, so... Uh, they they taught us in
1: school. Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. We did a post, uh, here recently, uh, on his birthday, uh, which Mm -hmm. was here in the last couple of weeks, but, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, are the same and valuing his input and his line of thinking Tying you know, the resource to have it, you know, tying all those pieces together. And, And that's how, I mean, that's how it all happens. It's, it's not magic. Um, and so mm-hmm. yeah, that that yeah, I, I would agree. That'd be a nice uh add to our hip survey plus required reading. <laughs> Go read this book. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so that you mentioning his name and having read that probably puts you at the head of the class, but Brent and I and some others have a a term for kind of that time period and all the duck hunters that came into the sport at that time. So that would I guess put you in the class of ninety nine, so to speak. Yep. Yep. Yep but it really, I mean, what a, what a great time to be a duck hunter though. And, and it's really, look, we all know we need, we need participants in our sport. We need new hunters. We need young hunters. Like, so there's nothing that's not a shot at anybody. It's just a reference for time and, and when it happened. But to me, like that area, you know, that 99, 2000, 01 mark is really kind of the antithesis of where we were at this year. You've got high B pop, you've got, waste grain, you've got weather, you've got everything going in our favor, and it made for some unbelievable duck hunting. And then in turn you look at this year and it's almost like everything is stacked against us uh between weather and B pop and all these things. So it's kind of the perfect storm in the opposite direction this year. But anyway,
1: I'll get off my soapbox there.
0: Well
1: yeah those were the those 99, 99, 2000, 2000 2001 I mean yep each of those years we killed a million mallards. A million. Yeah. We killed 311 last year. Killed like, them. 311,000.
0: I mean, yeah. And we didn't even, how many do we survey this year? What was our last survey? 200 or something thousand? Yeah. In the state? Yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, I should specify. Yeah. In Arkansas.
1: Right. Right. So yeah.
0: That, killing a million to, to having a quarter million.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's nuts. It's nuts. But let, let's circle back to something because this is something we don't talk about on this show probably enough. Uh, we've done a lot of science-based episodes, and we'll talk about some of that because some of the stuff you're doing and you're seeing, uh, I think it's worth really worth talking about. Uh, but you've you've referenced hunting with your, you know, your dad, your grandfather, your godfather, um, and and have noted, you know, in talking to us before the show, you know, the role mentorship played with with you and. And, and where you are and why you have this certain way you view the sport and, and the certain way you view the resource. Uh, and I, I can definitively say Casey and I both had good, solid mentorship and that's, that's kind of helped craft how we see it um, and have grown to that point. Cause you know, everybody talks about the six stages, a hunter, the seven stages, a hunter, there's different, different uh, takes on that, but um uh, Kind of talk about that for a minute, maybe, you know, the role of mentorship you see playing and, and where you think mentorship kind of stands modern day, because Case and I have our opinions on that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't be the hunter I am if it weren't for my mentors and I possibly wouldn't be into conservation like I am if I didn't have it. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's a huge missing ingredient from our modern day hunters is that, uh, You know, they're learning from online, YouTube videos, and uh, there's a disconnect there, I think, um, especially with ethics. And because, you know, my godfather, grandfather, they taught me um, about just ethics in general when you're hunting. And uh, there's just a, a carried down legacy that you can't replace. You can't replace that with a YouTube video and uh and there's a you know a outdoor knowledge base that's passed down, I guess you could say um but uh yeah i am that's what's concerning today is that I think a lot of parents and um you know they're i guess they're, you know they're swamped at work or they live in a city, and they can't you know they don't have time to take their kids hunting or um, and I think that's a big reason why we're losing hunters, uh, but yeah, if it. If it wasn't for my mentors, I wouldn't be the conservationist that I am today. So uh, yeah, I don't I don't know how we, we fix that, but we definitely need more mentors in the sport.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you have a I mean, do you have like a a landmark moment? Um, uh, you know, something that really, you know, either your grandfather, your godfather, you know, whoever that kind of really stuck with you and kind of kind of hit home as to okay, this is how we, this is how we do this thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, just little things like, uh, getting it, you know, to let the ducks rest, uh, you know, and learning not to hammer a hole out every day, you know, just little key things like that, that, uh, you know, kind of instill to me, uh, you know, to respect other hunters, um, when you're in the field and, you know, that's like when I go to public land, uh, I used to hunt the cash and the white and Bayomito a lot. I mean, I, you know, it just seems to be an utter lack of respect out there and I can't help but think that's because they didn't have a good mentor, um, that taught them how to hunt and how to call Well, calling ducks, for one thing, I was taught at an early age, how to call ducks. Um, and one thing I learned is, you know, usually the less you call the better, but, uh you know, just calling them on calling ducks on the turns and uh you know being soft when they come over you and you know just basic things like that with uh working ducks and uh you know knowing your lanes when you're shooting and i you know I just think there's a lot of kids that are out there that they didn't have anybody uh teach them those basics of uh hunting and uh, I think that's a a big problem we've got now. But as far as one key moment, you know, I, I just think it was a little bit of everything, you know, just learning from the ground up.
1: Yeah. Well, when you get to tag along, even when you're, you know, you're young and you're probably not doing a lot of the shooting, but you know, at that age, if, if, if whoever took you was able to find a way to keep you engaged, you know, cause a lot of kids go on hunts and they sit over in the corner, maybe on their phone the whole time or or mm-hmm. they they don't even get up in the morning they just stay at camp. Uh, you know, you see so if you find a way for it to be interesting and engaging to a kid, they start absorbing all these things and 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 see, you know, how you know, men and uh, even friends, not even their dad, you know, it could be friends that that really impose um a lasting uh, impact on them that uh, you know, this is how we this is how we do this sport. Um and but you know, you reference that there's a lot of kids that didn't get good mentorship. I think there's a lot of grown men in the sport oh, that, yeah. jumped, that jumped into it and didn't really, didn't, didn't have anyone show them the ropes and it's, it's coming to light in some of the things we hear and see, um, you know, within the sport today. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about it on public ground. I, there's some stuff that goes on on private ground. <laughs> yeah. that makes you want to scratch your head and, what I mean, what are these guys thinking, or where who told them that's that's what how you do this? Um, yep, and so uh, you know, it's it just trickles on. So, you know, it's it, it's hard, probably hard to find a mentor when you're you know, you're a grown ass man. Um, because you know, everybody <laughs> yeah. thinks they know what they know, and, and nobody's gonna yep. tell me different. I'm I'm smart enough to figure it out, but I mean, there's there's a lot of just knucklehead stuff that goes on, yeah, it really makes you wonder.
2: Well, you know, tree topping is, is, and and that shaped the ducks' behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, you can hunt by Omito. I I can't get a single duck to break the trees, and uh and that's I, I think that's just because of conditioning. I mean, I know it's because of conditioning. You know, they sit on Halliwell on the rest area, and uh they'll get up off of it, and everybody's blowing at them, and. You know, you could, I, you could probably point and say it's because these grown hunters didn't have good mentors that taught them how to work ducks. And uh, because of that, you know, the birds just, they won't dip below treetop and everybody's just, you know, extra full choke tubes and shooting ducks with 12s and 10 gauges at, you know, 60, 70 yards at the treetop. Um, so it's, you know, it's even, I think it's, you could even go as far as saying that you know, poor mentorship is shaping uh duck behavior.
1: That's a good, that's a great point. Yeah. I think we definitely have a culture
0: issue crisis, if you will, in duck hunting, uh, and goose hunting. Really. I think sometimes you go, you go watch a, a, a goose operation run and it's, uh, it's even worse than duck hunting. I think, um, watch, watch groups, you know, with, with paid clientele shooting at birds that are a hundred yards high. Um, uh, They'll hunt all day. They'll stop at lunch and shuffle in another group, hunt them midday, shuffle in a third group at afternoon, and they've hunted the field the entire day and and killed a handful of birds in the process and wonder why they don't have success, wonder why nothing stays around them, run off everything anywhere near them. I mean, I just don't think that... I mean, I know my grandfather, he taught me differently. would have never put that much pressure on the resource. And I think... You know, we use that term class of ninety-nine and it's you know, it is a little tongue in cheek. It's kind of a jab in a sense, but what really happened there was that we lowered the barrier to entry. It became easy to go duck hunt. You didn't have to know how to call. You could take a spinner and go harvest birds and you were successful. And you know, that's not to blame anybody or or, or throw fault at anyone's feet, but we've got a generation of hunters that did not learn they didn't learn from someone else. They weren't passed down this idea of leaving something behind or leaving it better than you found it. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what we are dealing with today. And you're seeing it from, I mean, even today on Facebook, you see guys griping and complaining about what's going on on public land, about killing ducks in the freeze and how people are handling that and posting pictures and all the things. It's just sure crisis. So I, I think the idea of mentorship and, and, what you're saying there is paramount to the success and the future of our sport.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's without our mentors. I mean, you know, what do we have? We don't, we can't, somebody has got to pass down the knowledge base and, uh, you know, that's, it's just, we do have a culture crisis. And I think a lot of our public land problems, you know, with, uh, I mean, overcrowding is a big issue, but also just the attitude, the mentality Mm -hmm. and the, of the hunter. Uh, you know, the piles make smiles kind of mentality. I i don't know when it kicked off or but I definitely wasn't raised to hunt like that. And yeah. um I, I don't know where that came in or how it where it came from, if it's, you know, instant gratification culture or what, or just not kids growing up in urban environments more, you know, not not growing up in the country and kind of having more of a relationship with the resource, you know. Um, I don't know, but it, it's definitely something's got to change.
0: Higden decoys introduced the first motion goose decoy nearly 30 years ago, and they continue to push the industry today. Check out Higdon.com to see their current lineup and check out the Foamville decoys. One of my favorites. Seems like there's always somebody in my blind who's ready to water swat the next duck. Yeti. From the legendary hard coolers to the new Barware series, Yeti has you covered. Or check out one of my favorite new products from them, the Loadout Series Go Box. Yeti, built for the wild. I saw a, a guy I know from back in the forum days. He was on Facebook the other day complaining about uh, pictures of ducks with like their bills stuck in a shotgun barrel or like people holding banded birds or chopping their feet off to show a picture of the band, just stuff like that. And he was like, does this bother anyone else? I was like, yeah, it bothers me. Like, I, <laughs> I'm with you. Like I don't know. It's yeah. just, that's not how I want to. It's not how I'm going to capture a moment in time and remember the resource by doing that to it. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, I I could probably bitch and complain for another hour about this. But um, let's talk about some stuff that you're that you're seeing. Let's talk. I mean, one of the things I love to talk about my family, father, grandfather, always called it imprinting. But really, we're talking about philopatry. So talk a little bit about what you're seeing there on your property and things that you've done and the success that you're seeing.
2: Yeah. So, well, you know, like I was hitting on earlier about providing that early successional and uh, mid to late successional habitat, you know, ever si- I guess about 10 years ago is when I re- we've always planted millet every now and then. But um, ever since I came back from college and started managing all of our land uh, past 10 years, I've really been, uh Doing a lot of habitat work and um that's where, you know, been observing the birds for the last 10 years. And I've just noticed that uh and I'd always been told as a kid, you know, like you can imprint birds and uh and now we notice phyllopatry returning to the same wintering grounds every season. I've just noticed that the birds do the same thing every year. Um I've got particular I have a particular moist soil unit. I call it the sanctuary and the ducks every every November, I can I can pretty well tell you that by the opening weekend of rifle deer season, right around November eleventh, twelve, somewhere in there, I can tell you that there's gonna be a few hundred mallards on that field if it's got water, which it, it usually usually does, and it's one of the lowest spots on the property. So I think that's a big reason why they're, you know, imprinted on it. Um, but I can guarantee you that the ducks will be in that field uh that first few weeks in November. And then after that, they move to the other moist soil units and they do the same patterns just about nearly mirrored every year. You know, I, they'll hit the sanctuary and then they'll roost right behind my house. And I've, there's about a 30 acre cypress break uh, behind my house and the birds do the, I go to the office just about every day and uh, usually rush back from the office trying to catch them on the, uh, coming back to the roost. Um but yeah, they, they do the same thing every day. And to me, that just indicates that, well, these birds have to have some kind of memory of the landscape. And there's a, a, there's the name of a hypothesis. It's like the landscape memory hypothesis or something like that. But it's, I can't remember the, the guy's name that it's uh, coined with, but uh, you know, it pretty much says that uh, birds remember, you know, migratory birds that display philopatry, they remember the food and cover sources and where everything's located and that's a big reason why they return back to the same places because they know where everything is. You know, if I, I'm going to go back to you know, if I'm going to go on a vacation, I'm going to go back to where I remember everything and I know what restaurants I like and if it's reliable and I know it's safe I'm going to go back there every year. Um, You know, if I go to florida every winter to get away from the cold weather i'm going to go to somewhere that i know is safe and uh has reliable food and safety um and i and i just at my place from seeing them do the same thing every year i can't help but infer that it's the same birds a lot of the same birds um and the the question i have though is well what about the hatch year birds that have never been here and that's where i kind of i think i've mentioned to y'all on uh, social media about the genetic component at play. And I think there's potentially a, uh, and I think Dr. Brazier hit on that with the Duck DNA project that, you know, it could be that the ducks that winter at my property have a little bit different uh, genetic coding than the birds that winter, say, in West Tennessee or, you know, or even, uh, I mean, I think it could even go as far as the birds that winter at uh, Bill Byers Hunt Club may have a different genetic structure. At least some of them may. Um, and that, you know, that's speculative. Um, but I think there's some data that could, you know, kind of indicate that or support that idea. Um, and that's kind of where I get into with the, the harvest on these birds is that, you know, if we're killing a lot of these breeding pairs that are forming on the winter, wintering ground, you got two birds that decided to display phylopatry for my farm. Well, if they're carrying that genetic code that translates to that behavior and I'm killing all those pairs, where's the where's the continuation in the offspring of that genetic, you know? Mm-hmm. And just with even out the genetic aspect, you know, where's your, uh, you're just killing your breeding stock too. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, I've just been managing for habitat, mainly moist soil, and uh, just notice that the birds do the same thing every year. It's, it's interesting that you bring up harvest and, and phyllopatchery
0: because, I mean, something we've talked about a lot here lately and I can't really avoid that conversation this, this year, this time of year. But that was one of the things my grandfather always talked about. He was uh, passionate about the Canada goose. Um, used to kill the lot here. Used to go to Cairo, which, you know, you want to talk about how things have changed. Go look at Canada goose hunting in Cairo, Illinois. But, one of the things he always passed on to me, like when we, when we would hunt Canada geese, which back then we would get, uh, I think, two weekends, like the last week in the duck season, and then maybe another weekend that we could hunt uh, Kegos. But he would always say, like, never shoot the lead goose in a flock and and no science behind that. But he always thought that that was kind of your, your brood stock, was those birds that led the flock and never wanted to harvest that brood stock. Um, and I think that's kind of where we come from now when we're talking about harvest regulations and that harvest matters, especially in a low population year like this, is that ultimately you are you are harvesting those birds that have those phylopatric bonds. And when you break those bonds, it's now kind of up in the air as to what's going to happen. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are going to sit there and say, well, if you don't want to go, you don't have to. Right. That's all well and good. And, and that's true. But it's not just us that are doing it you know, it's, it's everyone out there that's hunting that's kind of running the risk of this. And uh Brent, we should have him on sometime, but Mickey Heitmeyer has this wonderful theory. It's very well laid out. I would love to have him discuss it, but he talks about Canada geese in particular through the Southern Mississippi flyway and how harvest basically not, I won't say eradicated, but killed all the broodstock that was coming down here. It broke those philopatric bonds and we no longer harvest Canada geese like we used to. And you know, we, I was maybe I was talking to my wife about it yesterday, but you know, we, we've learned, we've seen all these other examples. You, you look at snow goose hunting in Katy, Texas, Cairo, Illinois for Canada geese. You look at Louisiana and white fronts. You look at all these other examples of, of harvest and pressure and habitat. And it's like we refuse to learn our lesson or we just keep ignoring all the warning signs. And I wonder, here we are talking about it, when are we really going to? acknowledge what has happened before and try to learn from those mistakes. And that may be more than we wanted to talk about today, but so I'll, I'll punt to y'all now. You can take it wherever you want to.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I think there's some validity to that. Uh, you know, you, you, you got to think and, you know, just on logic and science and logic don't always line up, but and un, not unlike humans. I mean, boys are going to go where the girls are. And so you you uh you start taking girls out of the equation. You know, if you got a girl that you know, a hen that likes your farm and you multiply that times however many, and you just cull the you know, you just shoot whatever flies that dies kind of deal, and you you're culling those out of your your flock that, that like to come to your spot, um, does does that cut that off? And those drakes go they just go chase whatever wherever, some other group of hens likes to go, um, and and that's totally changing their their dynamic uh, and their lines that they're going to fly and travel every day. You know, I don't know, uh, but it, you know, logically that makes sense. And so, uh, I've just always had the opinion I'm just I'm just not going to shoot them, um, and and I don't feel like I have to. And I, and I understand some people aren't as aren't as fortunate or. or Whatever you want to call it, and they do. They they have the attitude. They're in the limit. I'm I'm shooting them, and and I'm not hating on them. I'm not pulling a Pat Pitt, <laughs> gonna get everybody riled up like he did uh, about his <laughs> the way he handles it. But um, you know, it, it's it does make you wonder. And and is there is there a way, you know, that Hunter not even. Hunter mortality in terms of population, but hundred mortality in, in terms of where they go. Yeah. It makes you wonder, especially based off some of these other things, especially when you stack on habitat depreciation on top of it. And guess what? In Arkansas, we got, we have a habitat problem. Um, not at the level that you see in South Texas and, and Louisiana and, and some other places, but, but we've got a, we've got an issue. If we got back to 10 million mallards and, and, you know, in the whole, whole flyway, but the, the normal number that we like to see show up in Arkansas, can we even feed them? And then right now I would say we would struggle. We might, we might've
0: fed mallards this year. Yeah. Our, our duck, our duck energy days may have not been at a deficit just because the numbers were so low, but right. Right. We didn't right. fix the problem. We just, we just saw another one.
1: Yeah. Correct. Yeah.
0: Sorry. I couldn't resist a chance to make that joke.
1: No, <laughs> population's fine. We just need a cold front.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've heard that enough times.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know where to go now. My, our look. I, <laughs> my <laughs> numbers didn't pick up. They're zero right now. Or, or they're not. Maybe. Maybe they're bouncing back a little bit as it's thawing. But uh,
2: uh,
0: can't say this stuff. I think a lot of times it's just totally misunderstood where the birds came from. I'm sure if you're in the bottoms right now, if you're hunting you know, white river down around Clarendon where everyone's killing ducks. It's the best you've seen all year. Well, okay. You got water and everything else froze up. You know, not saying that birds didn't come from the North cause we know that they did, but they also came from the East and the West and some of them from the South. Uh, it, it just restructured everything, but
2: that's a whole other conversation.
1: Yeah. What did you see during this freeze down there?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what I was just about to say that, you know, I'm here in the bottoms and, uh, I mean, it, The birds, I I don't really think I picked up, I think we picked up a few new birds over the weekend. It just seems like our numbers increased a little bit. Uh, But for the most part, you know, we get that November push and then we get a mid to late December push. And it just seems like it's the same ducks. They're just all concentrated on the deep water, Um, you know, that I've got an oxbow lake right by my house. And all the birds are on a moist soil unit that's, you know, 100 yards just to the uh west of that Oxbow Lake, and all those birds pretty much just rolled over from the moist soil unit to the Oxbow Lake. And they've just been sitting on the Oxbow Lake all week, and everything's starting to thaw out, and now they have moved back to that exact same moist soil unit. So to me, that says, well, those same birds, they remembered where the food was at, and they just went back to the the same unit. So, well, yeah, a lot of times I think, because I, I remember hunting the cash in the white during a hard freeze and everybody'd say, Oh, this is all fresh new birds. Well, I don't know if it, maybe some of them, but I think a lot of what we were shooting is just birds that couldn't access the rice fields anymore. And they just, you know, they couldn't get in that shallow water. So they're all in the bottoms where you got current and it's not locked up. So it's not necessarily new birds from North Dakota or wherever it's, it's uh new, new birds in that area, but they're still, Local Arkansas ducks that have been here, you know,
1: yeah, I don't think we'll really be able to tell until everything thaws and they kind of redistribute. Um, but by then, I mean, the season's going to be almost over, so we may not really get a really good picture, um, <laughs> of what this, this freeze really did as far as pushing ducks. Now, you're right, it makes them gang up because they there's only so many places they can go, one and two. They uh they're they're desperate um so you know you got you got um just a, a different distribution than you might see at, an, at another time of year and it's so cold they they've got to try to find food uh because they're burning calories just staying warm so they either sit and huddle up uh, as long as they can to not burn the calories or they they get up and try to forage a little bit and find some food and and you catch them in the right spot you can you can get after them some people are um and probably probably renewing their love for duck hunting a little bit after a, yeah. a, pretty, tu- a pretty tough year. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I I think that's great. I mean, it's kind of fleeting because as soon as the freeze goes, those ducks aren't going to be there anymore. They're going to go back, especially with all this rain we're getting this week. There's going to be sheet water all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. So these ducks are really going to probably really spread out and, and, and gorge on anything they can get their hands on to make up for all this uh, this loss but i i wrote a, an article a couple of years ago in greenhead on on what moves the modern mallard and i'm not so sure that these cold fronts really move that many birds nowadays um we've talked about it before on the show that the birds have adapted they know these cold these cold snaps these freezes we get don't last very long anymore uh, this is the definitely the longest one we've had in As far as I can remember, I can't remember one lasting a week like this one has, you know, where everything is frozen for a week. Um, I think it's more, you got the more of the calendar driven birds And, and our push of birds line up exactly with what you just said. That late October, early November push. And then there's a mid to late December push. And those are the ducks, primarily, those are the ducks we get there is no mythical late january push of ducks um no yeah we probably did pick some up in, in this this event because there's some really harsh conditions north of us too um but it, i i don't i just don't believe we get this magical push of ducks that you know the ducks are just now getting here in mid january i just i, I can't buy mm-hmm. that
0: yeah no I, I think if you look at you know kind of the photo period you know like we talk about these this early push um and then what you see, in my opinion, what you're seeing in, in December, be it mid to late December, is you're usually seeing water on the landscape. That's usually when the bottoms get water in them. We get sheet water in ag fields. You've got, you know, extra increased levels of habitat and these birds go out and sample and they move out. And and I think two uh, birds north of us realize, you know, that there is habitat now on the landscape further south. And that's when we, we start to see an increase in birds. Now, that's kind of the two periods I think that you get birds and if you don't get them, um, if you don't get them in those two periods, we're, we're in for a pretty tough year. And we started, obviously started the year, you know, in a deficit, uh, in those early season birds and didn't get any water in the landscape until recently. So kind of explains without talking about cold fronts to me, it explains why our bird numbers are so low and, and obviously the habitat issue as well. I mean, excuse me, population issue as well.
1: Yeah. And this year's a, a, going to be an anomaly, I think, or a blip because it was so warm and it was so dry everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't just here. It was everywhere. So it's, I mean, it's going to be, we're going to have to take this particular season and kind of, kind of almost set it to the side and let some more seasons pass to make, make some really strong feelings either way. Cause this, it was, this was just such an odd year. I mean, we, yeah, yeah. last year was dry too, but not as dry and as warm as this one was. It was, I mean, it was yeah crazy how warm it was and, and not only warm here i saw i saw something on north dakota's uh, mid season survey which was before all this super cold weather hit you know the whole middle part of the country but they were hold they were still holding like 300,000 canada geese in north dakota which was a record uh, the previous record was 222,000 at a midwinter survey and they had I'm trying to remember how many mallards they have. I wanted to say in the, in like in the 40,000 range, which is not that many grand scheme of things at all, but usually they have like none, zero uh, because everything's frozen. Um, And, and they probably don't have any now. I mean, maybe there's a few hanging around, but this cold snap probably locked up everything. And those 40,000 that were hanging around were gone, but typically they, they they're counting like no mallards uh, in early January. So it was just Mm -hmm. a, really strange, strange season, but I, uh, you know, you see posts and things like that. that oh, there's so many ducks. They're still in North Dakota. Well, <laughs> the survey, there was only, you know, and the survey doesn't count every duck. We all know that. Um, they could have been different parts that they don't fly and things like that. But, you know, for their count to be 40,000, I don't think that means there's still a lot of bird. There were a lot of birds up there. Uh, well, they're probably yeah. somewhere in between.
0: Yeah, I was going to say to to your point about, you know, survey doesn't count every bird, neither does our survey either. So that all we can compare is midwinter survey to someone else's midwinter survey. It's the That's only right. barometer we have. So you can't just throw one out. You know, well, you know how that goes. But yeah. I, I think that really the only thing that will really shed some light on this year as a whole will be the BPOP survey. I think when that number comes out, it will explain or shed some light on what. What really happened, you know, was it more weather related or was it population or was it maybe kind of both? Maybe the B pop doesn't drop that much, you know, but to me, that's the only, the only piece of information that we're going to get. That's really going to shed that much light. We've got some band movements and stuff like that. And, and that, you know, as that data comes in and gets analyzed, we'll understand some more about what they did during this front. But I'm, I'm anxious to see the, the B pop.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. Um because it's uh, by all indications right now it's not looking great um in in Canada uh you know they haven't had the snowfall snowfall melt creates the ponds uh, maybe they maybe some rain does happen maybe some more snow does happen but right now it's looking a little it's looking a little dicey uh mm-hmm. you know as far as having good duck production habitat so um we'll see we'll see we sure we're sure on a str- string of breeding seasons going the wrong way. Um, yeah, which is kind of, that's where we've landed, where we've landed.
0: And there, there could be, <clears throat> I think there's some information that's going to surface, uh, in February, mid February. So in the flyway meetings, uh, some stuff I'm hearing about that could be interesting. So maybe we'll jump in and do an episode kind of on, on what comes out of those flyway meetings. It'd be interesting to see, I, I wish they would stream it. Like we talked about with Dr. Osborne. That'd be great to, uh, be able to listen to some of what's being said.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I was going to say the, the AHM, you know, I'd mentioned to Brent online about, you know, what could the, you know, we've been talking about, like you had that interview with Dave Rave and how he's saying a, a lot of the, you know, we may be overcounting ducks. And, you know, as just a lay person, you know, what can, you know, my question is, what can we do to try to get, you know, a, Um, a change within, with the methodology that uh, uh, for collecting data with AHM or what, you know, how can we push for a change to AHM? Um, I I don't know. That's just one of the questions I have is, you know, I I sit here and I see, you know, you talk about the seasons already set for 60 days and it's, it's like, you know what, I don't know what to do about it, I guess. That's just something I thought, you know, might be a good discussion to, kind of figure out what kind of action could a, you know, the average hunter do if it's concerned about popular big pops.
0: Well, Brent, correct me if you, if you think it will correct me, if you think I'm wrong about this, I kind of think the only, there's not much that we can do. I, I think because there there's seems to be differing opinions in the scientific community. You've got one camp that, that believes something is wrong and that the data is flawed and you've got another camp that, Thinks that we're just a wet spring away from being fine. And there's no, I don't know, there's any hard data to support either side of it. And it doesn't make anybody a bad guy in this situation either, because ultimately the goal is the same. I mean, they're, we're all on the same team. We just have different viewpoints on it. So, you know, Brent and I on this show, we're not trying to cast anyone in a bad light, but the, the goal here is to to ask questions, to spark conversation, to be better educated as consumers of this resource. So I say all of that just to say that I think as a hunter, if you're concerned, the best thing you can do is pay attention, listen, ask questions, find somebody in the know like Dr. Osborne, educate yourself, and then educate others around you. Because the more educated we become as hunters, the more the scientific community I think has to listen to us. Because If you look at it, you you look at a lot of these managers and the people that are making the decisions, you know, they're putting the emphasis is on hunter opportunity. They want to maximize days in the field. And in my opinion, this is just me. I think that's putting the cart in front of the horse. It doesn't matter to me if I can duck hunt 300 days out of the year, if I'm only going to see a dozen ducks over the course of the year, I I don't want to go. I would rather go 10 days and see 300,000. So I would rather see it maximize population versus maximize opportunity. That's just my opinion. So to answer your question, I think as a hunter, if you if you have worries, if you have concerns, talk to people, ask questions, and just, you know, it, I think it's going to take a groundswell effort to raise concern that that maybe this is not perfect. Maybe the data is flawed like some in the scientific community think.
1: Well, there's the, I mean, yeah, there's that whole element and not everybody has to be a duck nerd. Like the, like the three of us probably would qualify as being pretty nerdy about all this stuff, which is fine. (laughs) There's a lot of people that I know that are very skilled, very good duck hunters, have great habitat management practices, pressure, all the things you do to be a consistently uh, productive waterfowler. They have no idea that it's already done deal that we have 60 day season next year. They mm-hmm. still believe that they're, I've heard we're going to a 30 day season next year. Is there, are we going to a 30 day season? You know, it's all that. They have yeah. no idea that it's already done that how, how it works yeah. and and how it's set. And, and it's, you know, the previous year's may pond count and breeding pair, breeding population survey. That's what decides it. So we're going off what happened last year sets next year. Um, it doesn't set the season that's coming up, so uh, that's a that's a there's a big gap there, and so if people have all these conversations in little silos, and there's not an some somehow some way they are not being reached. They either don't listen, read whatever to Ducks Unlimited's magazine, Delta's magazine. They don't listen to the you know podcasts that talk about this. They have conversations in little silos. And don't realize, don't don't know that how some of this stuff works, and that prevents a groundswell of people going, "Hey, the eye test is telling me I'm not seeing as many ducks as I used to, um, or we're not harvesting as many ducks as we used to. Something's up." They just have these, like I said, little little conversations in silos amongst their friend group. Uh, not having the full picture of everything and and understanding how this works, and so if you don't understand how it works, then you don't you're not able to go to someone and say, "We demand we take another look at AHM." It's been twenty eight years. I guess next year we'll make twenty eight in a row. Well, we had the one fifty day season in there, um, but anyway, this long running thing, and we're we're trying to say that you know the, the data, the what we're doing, the transects we're flying. The way we count them, all that's great, and that's 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 the model, and that's we're just gonna keep on rolling this train down the tracks instead of, hey, we're hearing from a lot of hunters, and I guarantee you would hear from more hunters this year, that they, and I'm not just talking about in Arkansas, I'm I'm, uh, you know, I talked to people all over the country. We've had them on this show, people that hunt all over the country, that um, don't believe, just don't don't believe we have the number of ducks that that uh that we could or should even even with dry breeding years um so is something Mm -hmm. wrong with the model something wrong with the data and and that's that should be a time for the science community to maybe step back and go let's take another look at this thing it's just a matter of getting enough of those guys that are sitting in the room to say hey it's time and, and we can't we can't kick this can down the road anymore um and and let's take another look. We've got to make massive changes because nobody, I, I, people say it. I don't think they believe it. Nobody wants a thirty day season. Uh, no, I don't. I don't care what pe- people say. Oh, we no. need to go back to thirty <laughs> days. No way. No way do you want that. Uh, mm-hmm. I definitely don't. Um, hell, you're lucky yeah. if you get thirty with a sixty day season. You get. You're lucky if you get thirty days that are decent to good conditions. Imagine yep. what happens in a, a thirty-day season. What do you get?
2: Five, ten. Yeah, five, ten good weather days.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, we don't want to see that. And and someday, I mean, something's going to happen, and we're going to be there. It's 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 just the way that works. But I don't know. We got. It just seems like it needs another look. And I, I definitely would support them at least doing that and instead of saying. You know, getting the rubber stamp out and going, oh, Matrix says, and I know they adjust the Matrix a little bit and it wiggles around a little bit, but uh, I don't know. Data is the question well, to me.
0: Well, so I'm glad you said data. The segue here, and we may come back and delete this whole thing I'm about to say, but I think, you know, it's a it's a narrative issue as well. We, we see these, you see these posts or you see these studies and they come out and cherry pick a stat to support their narrative and, you know, like the whole ducks were up 80% in North Dakota this last year, you know, and what was it, Scott? I mean, like it, it wasn't even Mallard's. It wasn't, and we, let alone, we didn't, we didn't talk about how small a role that the U S side of the border plays in the recruitment anyway, but it was that number got tossed around. Hey, we're gonna have a great year. Look how much these birds are up in, in this little area of this state. And didn't even talk about the species, you know, and what was it we saw yesterday? I'm not going to call anybody out or say any specific numbers, but it was some, some stat that was up like 150% over whatever number of years, but it was like shorebirds. Like, I mean, I guess that's our problem is we cherry pick information to make people feel good. Why can't we just say what it is? I mean, we, we know the numbers. They're not, it's not hard to find them, but. I guess I don't know. I I have a problem with that. Like, don't don't sugarcoat something. Like, let's just let's deal with facts. Let's deal with numbers and call it what it is.
1: Yeah, and you and you're a guy that's in the business. You know, I'm just doing it for personal pleasure. Uh, You know, it's whether you know does money play a role in all this? Is are the conservation organizations afraid that donations will go way down if people? You know, so there's a lot of. I'm not saying that's what they're doing. I'm I'm not implying that, but. That's got to be in the back of your mind a little bit. Uh, license sales will go down if we if we don't we don't keep this keep this up. Um, it it does make you wonder.
0: Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, especially with state agencies. Like, I, I, look, there are people at state agencies that don't want to voice their opinion because of who they work for and what their job is, and that's understandable. That's not super secret squirrel information. There, it just that's the way it is, and there are people that. That's why the guys that retire tend to come out and say, hey, this is what's going on, because they're not worried anymore about their job. So,
2: Yeah, and I I think, well, Dave Rave is a retired biologist, right? And he came on and, you know, pretty much said, you know, there's not as many Mallards as, you know, we have less Mallards now, he thinks, than we ever have. And uh, now I don't know if he was saying that during his career, but I imagine he feels a lot more comfortable saying that now.
1: Yeah. Sure. We, and that's not, we heard we, that's not, we heard from another one, uh, yeah, uh, that, that heard that episode. And he came, he's also former retired federal, uh, refuge manager that now does private consulting. And he's, he echoes everything he said. Now that he doesn't work anymore for, for the feds, he's, he's able to cut loose with what he really thinks. And he's, in, he's in the same camp.
0: Mm hmm. And I'll I'll throw this caveat out there. It doesn't make, you know, it's their opinion based. It doesn't make it any more right than someone who says everything is fine. But I guess it's I don't want to say it's refreshing, but I think we need to hear some other opinions. You know, we need to hear all sides of the argument before we can say, oh, yeah, we're good or, oh, the sky is falling. And I, I guess that's the big thing. You know, how do how do we. How do we make AHM better? How do we avoid situations in the future? We hear we hear out all opinions, we weigh all the evidence, and then we we try to make adjustments.
1: That'd be optimal. Um, Just say, like like I said, just take another let's take another look at it um, and and make sure we're we're right, so we don't have to go to thirty day season. Maybe we can cut something off with the pass. Um, you know, low population year, hundred. You know, does hunter mortality matter versus just going this blanket statement that it doesn't? Because it probably didn't when we had 10 million mallards, but we don't have 10 million mallards. Right, um, we've almost cut that in half. So, just let's take a fresh look at things. It's it's due, yeah. long overdue.
0: Well, as someone put it to me the other day, the the whole thing is an experiment, and we have a whole new data set now. You know, we we have the data harvest and B pop and Mapon. And we have more data now than we had when we started. So, if the whole thing is an experiment why don't we look at it and and maybe consider looking back through the past and say, okay, at what point could we have moved to a moderate season and potentially course corrected this before we got to exactly where we're at? You no, know, I think that's, I mean, I know that's at least my standpoint, you know, if this is an experiment, what are we learning from it? And I think you've got some like Dr. Osborne and Dave Rave, and there's some others that I won't name that, that are thinking the same thing, you know, why are, what are we learning from this? What can we do better the next time? Not screaming and crying that we need to shut the season down because nobody
1: wants that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No. And I think there's more people sitting in sitting in the room at those technical council meetings that wanna wanna say more than they think they, they can. Um and it's just gonna take somebody's gonna have to really step out there on a limb and say, Hey guys. Let's just take another look. I'm not standing up here saying everything's wrong. We got to cut season back or we got to change lint, you know, all that. But let's take another look. Let's, let's get serious about this instead of just kind of doing the same thing. Um, While our hunters for the first time in a very long time, you probably have a majority of duck hunters saying what's going on. I'm not, I'm not seeing it and I'm not feeling it um, like I have. So I mean, hey, you're not going to get a, you're not going to get a bunch of upset people on the hunting side. If you take another look, they're already wondering what's going on.
2: Yeah. Well, and you know, even I'm hesitant, uh, to come out publicly and say, you know, I think we're killing too many ducks and, um, you know, it's kind of scary, you know, saying that cause it, you get a lot of backlash. And I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of people that, uh, would agree with us and agree with me on the. Idea that we're killing too many ducks. I just, you know, kind of say closeted about it, you know, and don't, yeah, yeah, necessarily speak up about it. And I, you know, I was a little afraid to come on here and and you know say that you know I think hunter harvest matters, and especially as populations decline, um, and with the dry prairie, and it made me a little more comfortable to come on here and say after I heard. uh <laughs> you know, Dr. Osborne say that, you know, we could be possibly impacting populations by killing hens, you know, right now. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, just the more of us that kind of speak up and say, hey, I," you know, you know, what can we change? Because something's not right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, you know, we had in a, in a, you know, a year like this where it was so dry. And, you know, because I, I didn't have the ducks that I normally have this year, but I, I think that was just, I, I think the ducks know when the bottoms are flooded, you know, and they definitely come to that water. But uh it's kind of comparing apples to oranges this year. But still, we know that bee pops are declining, and it's been several years now where we've had a dry prairie. And, uh, you know, and I'm not, like you said, I'm not in the business of it, so I'm not worried about making money off of ducks or anything like that, like I've pretty much turned my place into a rest area as a result of my concerns. And, uh, you know, my whole objective here is just, you know, can we send as many breeding pairs as possible back and see what happens? But, um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of scary going out on a limb and, you know, speaking your mind on it. So. It is, it is for sure.
1: Um, uh, but but you know, you see what you see. Uh, yep, and that's that's where it comes from. Uh, we're obviously not immersed in all the data, and we don't do the, we don't get in the airplane and do the surveys and things like that. And and totally right. appreciate the people that do. Um, just as from a hunter perspective, are we are we making sound decisions based on quality data, a quality model that is? The game has changed since HM – Came out and like I said, I know they tweak it, but uh in a situation like this where we got a model that's geared towards hunter opportunity, is it time to take a step back and think resource first and make some adjustments to get it back to this magical ten million mallard point? Which is, you know, we're a long ways from that, and I don't know if a couple of wet springs gets us back to ten million right now. I mean, there's not as many ponds in even if it we get all kinds of crazy snow melt and rain on the prairie pothole region. A lot of those potholes that existed the last time it really rained are gone. They've been farmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's right. So it's a it's just a different circumstance and, and and we've got to really think through all that so we we can avoid taking this drastic measure to to a thirty day season and, and and all these other things that, that come along with that. So uh, that's just take another look. That's, I think that's what most hunters are asking. Um, um, like I said, I, those that say 30, they want 30 days and three ducks again to get it right. I don't, I don't know that they really mean that. Um, they're just looking for, for waste. They just know they're not seeing what they want to see. And, and to them, yeah. in the way we grew up, that's what, that's what happened. You know, there was no AHM. It, the seasons bounced all over the place. Uh, very reactionary. And, and AHM was meant to solve that and, and be more data-driven versus reactionary to, well, oh, it's dry on the prairies. Okay, 40-day season. Kind of mm-hmm. kind of went on the season. Okay, 45-day season. So um, we got a model now. Let's just make sure the model's, model's working like we need it to to get the population back up. And, and hopefully we can hang on to some habitat and we can get some, some snowfall melt and some rain up there and have a good productive year get uh get the numbers back on how we like it
0: and so i'll I'll add this too Brent for for the people out there who you know want to argue with us that harvest doesn't matter I don't think three and thirty would fix our situation I think you know maybe having you know pulled the nose up a few years ago we could have avoided being a rat today but I think you know we we need habitat plain and simple you cut harvest in half days and half whatever you want to do it's it's not going to fix the situation right now it could have had an impact potentially you know four years ago when we started seeing this trend but i don't i don't think it's the savior now so
2: yeah i i think it's going to be a long way back to 10 Mm -hmm. million you know it's it's not going to happen overnight um and Mm -hmm. even if we do have a wet prairie year it's it's not going to bounce back and you know, I, I think a lot of the the damage has been done as far as you know. I mean, the season lasts until the end of January, and uh, we've had so many dry years and poor reproduction years. And even if it gets wet, I just don't think we have the numbers of birds to really, uh, you know, cause a huge surge in the population. I may be wrong, but um, at least that's the way I see it. Um, but yes. Yeah, you know, talking about habitat, um, you know, if I didn't manage for food on my place, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold the number of birds that I hold if I didn't have the moist soil and the millet. And you see what's happening with agriculture in our state with fall tillage and, you know, less waste grain. That's where I think, you know, just a huge overhaul with more programs like the rice program are really going to be crucial. Uh you know, just for the state holding birds and and getting them to display philopatry for the state. You know, to want to come back because they know the food's there. Um, I think that's you know, just you know, not even excluding the harvest aspect of it. It's just the habitat equation. You know, how do we get more landowner incentives? Um, for you know, farmers to, you know, not fall till and to flood their fields and uh, you know, how do we get more programs like that to incentivize private landowners to put more duck energy use days, you know, on the landscape.
0: Well, I think that's something we can do as hunters. You know, that, that you control your vote. You, you can control who you vote for and what they're pushing because conservation dollars, the farm bill, and you, you hit the nail on the head there. We've got to incentivize farmers to to do these things. You can't blame, a farmer for trying to be profitable what we've got to do is incentivize them in a way that makes them profitable and benefits the land we we throw away tax dollars on a lot of things that don't matter but these are issues that that do especially when you look at when you look at uh, migratory birds in general i mean the impact it has globally it, it's significant and our politicians you know drive that ship with funding and and that's something that Canada needs to I wish we could get more funding in Canada to incentivize, you know, these farmers to stop tile draining. Cause that's probably the biggest thing we've got working against us right now. So, um, yep. that's, that's one other thing that we can, we can all work on and hopefully agree on anyway. Yep.
2: No yeah. Doubt. Habitat. Yeah. Habitat's what it all ultimately boils down to. And that's we uh, well, just like buying our duck stamps every year. I mean, that's one of the most important things we can do, you know, every season. Just buy a duck stamp. as simple as that. Speaking of that, did you guys see where they tapped into duck
0: stamp funds to avoid a government shutdown? No, no I did not. I <laughs> Max Sharp sent it to me. I didn't do a whole lot of homework on it. But uh, apparently they're passing some bill that's going to allow them to to tap into that money that's there to avoid a shutdown. Wow. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. I'll do some homework. So if, if that's not true, nobody... Hold me to
2: fire on that one. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't he be sent that me some guy. Links.
0: I, yeah, he sent me some links. I didn't dive into it. Again, that's Max Sharp that said
2: that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, can we delete that out? Or, yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> wow. but it, that was pretty wild. I saw that. And I was like, that's uh, just
1: government in action. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah, that's... that's uh, I don't know. I guess it wouldn't be surprising, maybe. I don't know. Well, Parent Man, this was an awesome episode. We uh truly appreciate you taking some time to get on here and visit and and I know we interact quite a bit on the on the social media side but it's good to kind of talk through some of this stuff with you. I mean you're doing some amazing stuff uh in your part of the world and and advocating doing a great job advocating uh you know through your social media channels too and showing people what's possible, you know, if you manage habitat and pressure uh what you can do with ducks even in a even in a down year and a down time. So, um man, like I said, we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your stuff.
2: I'm glad I could be a part of it. And, uh, I'm looking forward to the next episode y'all got coming up. Um, but I'm just really appreciate y'all having me on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: well, Uh, appreciate everybody listening again of course appreciate our sponsors Uh, we're adding some new ones here lately that will be coming on board here in February and and excited about that Um, for all those listening you can check us out on any of the major podcast platforms social media at the standard sportsman and hopefully everybody has a good close of the season and enjoys this thaw when the ducks get get going again we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time
0: light boots the lightest pair of knee boots you're ever going to find Weighing in just 13 ounces each, putting on a pair of light boots is truly a jaw-dropping experience.